0: Uh, if you want to open, open uh, your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, uh, we're going to start in verse 13 today. And I want to read this passage. The passage has a lot of titles, uh, but my favorite is the parable of the rich fool. Verse 13 starts, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. It's one of these passages that I I like and I don't like. At the same time, being a good American, enjoying capitalism, enjoying the freedom that we have here, I read it and I'm like, oh. Is that something that we really, really want to teach through today? But then I also think, well, we know who Jesus is talking about in this passage, right? He's talking about, like, misers. Like, people with this abundant wealth that are completely out of touch with the world. Like, that's who Jesus is talking about. So I could teach on that because, you know, it's about misers. And and when we are kind of getting into this holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas... We're kind of reminded of probably the most famous old miser ever. If you have heard the story of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge comes to mind. This is who Jesus is talking about, people like Ebenezer Scrooge. I love Chuck Dickens' description of Scrooge. I think it fits well with the guy in this story. He says, uh, oh, but he was a tight-fisted Hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, and shriveled his cheek. Stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, and thin lips blue and spoke out shrewdly with a grating voice. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge, nor warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him." What a description. That's who Jesus is talking about, someone like that in this passage, right? A miser. There's a, a story about a, a notorious miser in, this, in, a, in a small town who, uh, who had great wealth. And uh, the, the chairman of the local charitable Community charity came to him and says, we keep having these uh, charitable events, and our records show that you've never, even though you're wealthy, you've never given anything to our, our charity. And the miser looked at him and said, oh, your records show that, huh? And the chairman of the charity said, yes, just wanted to talk through it. And the miser said, well, do your records show that I have an elderly mother who, when my father passed away, was left penniless? Or do your records show that I have a disabled brother who isn't able to work? Do your records show that my sister was widowed at an early age and has children that she cares for? Embarrassed, the, the chairman of the charity said, no, oh, I, I our records don't show that. I didn't realize that you had all that going on. And the miser said, well, I don't give anything to them, so why would I give anything to you? <laughs> That's the kind of person this passage is about, right? Like the, Those kind of people that have this abundant wealth. and are, Or, or maybe someone like, uh, uh, when we, we think about maybe people, I don't know, in our old culture, like a Howard Hughes. There's been a lot of movies made about Howard Hughes lately. Uh, maybe, maybe someone like that, who was this great businessman in the, the 20th century, kind of built this huge empire. But, but, but we're, we know that later on in his life, he was spent his life was spent in isolation. He had all sorts of other things going on but was isolated and paranoid. Maybe it's about someone like Howard Hughes that Jesus is talking about when we come to this passage. Well, I think when we when we do that and I know that I do that there's there's a couple of things that we fall that are dangerous to think that way. The first is we we always assume that Jesus is talking about someone who's abundantly wealthy. And I don't think he is. I don't think there's anything, like, inherently evil about being abundantly wealthy. I think there's something more going on here, and it's easy to pick at those people and say they're the ones that are so selfish. The other thing that is dangerous is when we think of of someone like, you know, Scrooge, or, or we project on someone else's, then it, then it, why this passage could never be about me. Like, I'm not a rich fool. There's no way that I am... in this situation that Jesus is talking about. It can't be about me. So something that's probably dangerous for all kind of religious people is to to see, you know, this passage, I I, I know someone that this passage is, is good for, that they need to hear this. You ever read scripture and think that? I know exactly who needs to hear this right now. And how often we forget to say, what does this mean for me in my life? It's how I live. When we break down this passage, what we find is uh, it follows a pretty easy outline. There's a request that's made of Jesus in verse 13. And I want to look at that request. And then I want to look at the response, Jesus' response in this passage. And in that response, what we find is that there's a problem that he identifies and a principle that comes with the problem. And then there's a parable and a punchline in this passage. So let's first look at the request. The request is made uh, within the context of the story. And in Luke chapter 12, we find that the the passage kind of opens with Jesus teaching a multitude. There's thousands of people who have gathered to hear his teaching. says that in verse 1. Thousands of people are gathered. If you can imagine the scene of Jesus teaching. And it says that he's talking to the disciples, but as he's teaching, there's probably this interaction with this larger crowd. And Jesus is teaching through this narrative that really has nothing to do with this man's request. And so when this man comes out of nowhere and has this request where he wants Jesus to intervene about a legal issue between him and his brother, it kind of comes out of nowhere. What we find is that that this man kind of uh, inserts himself into the situation in a way that just seems kind of like uncomfortable. And we've seen this before in Jesus' teaching, right? We've seen like the, the paraplegic who who His buddies, his four friends come, and they, they come bring this paraplegic to Jesus, and they can't get to Jesus because he's in this house, so they, you know, they go up onto the roof, and they dig a hole, and they lower the paraplegic end. Like we've seen an urgency where people interrupt Jesus, but in this passage, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of urgency. This man just kind of inserts himself into this story, and he has an agenda. He wants something from Jesus. I think there's something to think about even uh, as, as we approach Jesus. Like we're told to come to him with our request, but what are our intentions and motives? How do we approach Jesus? And maybe this guy's intentions are, are pure, maybe he's hopeful, maybe he's desperate. We don't know, it doesn't give us that information. All we know is that he inserts himself into this story with this request says, Jesus, would you judge between me and my brother? We have to assume that his brother's probably there. I kind of feel like this would be pretty awkward. This is like an awkward moment. Like, what does Jesus do? I'm sure he's looking at him, and and his his response is, well, who made me judge? I would be like, well, you're Jesus. I would just assume that, you know, you would be good to judge on this. But Jesus doesn't take that stance or that role in the story. He just says, who makes me judge of the situation? And then it says he looks at them My thought is that he's probably looking at both of the brothers, and he says, watch out. Be on alert for all sorts of greed, of greed, all types of greed. Be on alert of that. I think it's interesting that he says there's different kinds of greed. It's not, we think of greed, we kind of have one idea of what it is, but he says all different types of greed, be on your watch, look out. I was curious about this word greed, kind of explored into it, see what does it mean. If you look at some of the original definitions, it's avarice, fraudulency, extortion, coveted practices, desire to have more without the thought of others. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas called this a sin, uh, but he called it a sin that condemns things that are eternal for temporary things now. So Aquinas defined greed. Forsaking things that are eternal for temporary things now. The Apostle Paul talks about greed in Colossians 3.5. He says, put to death all sorts of things that are of our flesh, but greed, which is idolatry. The pastor, Charles Swindoll, tells a story about greed and its effects on, on us. And he, he tells a story about ring-tailed monkeys ring-tailed monkeys at a zoo. Uh, And he said when he saw ring-tailed monkeys, he realized these are really interesting creatures. They're also very wily and hard to get, hard to capture. Uh, In fact, the zookeepers would say these are the hardest animals to capture. And the way that they're able to capture them, Swindoll tells the story, is is over. these ring-tailed monkeys are over on the continent of Africa. And some of the old native people realized how they could capture these monkeys. These monkeys loved different types of melons, fruits, so they would break them open and eat them. And the people realized that we could capture these ring-tailed monkeys by cutting a hole in the melon. Because the monkeys love to get the seeds out of the melon. That's like their favorite food. So they would cut a hole in the melon. Instead of the monkey breaking the melon open, it would stick his hand and it would fit into the melon. But then as it grasped the seeds, it would try to pull its hand out and it would get stuck. We've all kind of seen how this works with a cookie jar and our children, right? But then the monkey wouldn't be able to figure it out. The monkey wouldn't be able to figure out that if I just let go of this thing that I desire, I could get away. And they would hold on to that thing that they desired so tightly that they would get captured by it. Swindoll says that's the way greed kind of works in our life. We grasp things that we want, but we end up being entrapped by them. I'm trying to think of personal examples in my life of, of greed, and I'm like, don't got any. Can't think of them. I mean, I'm not a really greedy person. I, you know, I don't, it's not like I'm, I'm super into possessions or money or cars, and I've got the best woman I can find, and <laughs> so there aren't, like, any particular examples, God. I don't know. How can I share? And then I started to realize that my life, the way that I live life, is a, an example of greed, and here's why. is because everything, that, every situation, everything that I approach in this life, I approach with a simple question, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? It's almost like this subconscious thing that drives all of my motives. And if, if there's not anything in it for me, I'm probably not interested. It's easy to be, sound sounds super spiritual and, and think I'm a pastor, I'm not a greedy person. But then if you look at the way I live my life, spend my money, spend my time, we would say, wow, it's all about you. <coughs> Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Then there's a principle that Jesus is talking about here, and he says this, that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of what we possess. I love the NASB talks about, uh, it, it, it translates it this way, it says, even if you have an abundance of possessions, that's not where you get life. And I think what Jesus is trying to say here is that we, we buy in to this idea that the things that we possess, the things that we own, we try to get life from them. We try to get life from them. We put our security in them. We put our hope in them. The things that we possess, we put our identity in them. And what Jesus is saying, that's not where the life comes from. There's an abundance of life. Yes, ma'am, may I help you?
1: No, I'm just, I'm just listening to you. What you're saying, I feel like some of the stuff that you're saying is like totally ridiculous. Cause people don't come to church just to be getting something all the time. You say people ain't on greed. I see you was looking at me back there, and I had to like address you on something. I'm not coming to church just to get anything. I come just come to serve God, and just to let you know that some of the people inside the church, uh, they're not right of what they doing. The past they so called call themselves pastors, but if you knew about God, you wouldn't talk about nobody up in the church. I could, people come in the church to get relieved, to get stressed off their mind. They don't come to church for people to talk about them. That's why people not up in the church, not because it's false people around up in the church. It's not talking about God the way they're supposed to talk about God. They talk about people's time to come up in the church. People don't feel right up in the church. Yeah. That's why there's not so many people here. I don't feel like that it's right to just criticize one person when you don't know anything about them.
0: First of all, I'm sorry if you have felt criticized. Oh, no, that I was not... Criticize. I'm sorry that you were criticized. That was not our intent in any way. Is there anything that we can we can do to help?
1: No, there's nothing that you can do to help. because I don't feel like every time I come to somebody's church, they want to look at me and interrogate <clears throat> me, Okay. interrogate me. I don't feel like that's right to do that. OK. I'm...
0: <laughs> no, I don't want to
1: talk I just want to get them straight about something. Well, we can talk after, but... Yeah, can we go outside, please? We have a lot of people here that didn't come to you. I can answer any question. Yeah.
0: I think that uh, sometimes things like this happen, and God has something for us. Um, that even if it feels disrupted, uh, we need to listen to. Um, that wasn't planned. I had no idea that was going to happen. Um, and I, I think that uh, this is a very generous, and loving community. Um, so I, I, uh, <laughs> and I and I think. Uh, this is what we're talking about today. Um, but let's uh, continue to hear from God and uh, and just consider that situation and, and see what God's trying to say to us. Let me pray first. Let's continue. Lord, we thank you so much for your gifts for us. And Lord, uh, I can't imagine uh, what has brought uh, this person to this place there's hurting, there's pain, there's been rejection, there's been probably mistreatment. Lord, it's a reminder that everyone that we come in contact with has, is carrying something. And Lord, I just pray that you would soften our hearts, yet you give us wisdom. And Lord, I lift up this person right now and ask your blessing. And Lord, we ask that you continue to speak to us today through your word. Teach us to be more like you. Teach us to carry your presence in everything that we do. Amen. Amen. So I'm I'm a fairly young pastor and haven't experienced a lot, but that definitely was a first for me. Um, So I'm going to try to move on. My dad's here. Do you have any advice, Dad? (laughs) Um, I, uh, I don't know where I'm at. <laughs> so we talk about uh, our life doesn't consist of the things uh, that we possess. And I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, don't get your life from abundance. That's not where abundant life is found. And then we look at his response, though. First, there's this, this problem where he talks about greed, and then the principle, life is not consistent in the abundance of our possessions. And then he explains this further through this parable. And it's fascinating, as you read this parable, uh, you can hear the word I and mine over and over again. Let's just read it again. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Think of this, uh, the mindset of the one. In this parable, the I, the my, the I, the my, there's an old movie Hook. Some of you remember that with Robin Williams. Sometimes when our kids are complaining to us, we, quote, hook the I, 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 my, 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 want, 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 now, now, now. Joking back with them drives our kids nuts, but that's what this parable kind of reminds me of. Everything is kind of viewed through this person's own desires. But is that enough to make this person a fool? Why would Jesus say that this is a foolish thing to think? A few things happen. First is I think that the character in the story fails to take into account for where his wealth has come from, for where the wealth has come from. The story opens with this phrase, the ground of a certain wealthy man produced a good crop. There's this reminder that there are these circumstances that are outside of our control. The ground of a certain man produced a crop. Which means there's something sovereign in how God provides for us. He never acknowledges that. He never says that this is a gift that's been given. This is grace. If anything, he thinks very, he's very fortunate. He's very fortunate. And there's something to working and tilling the ground and picking out the right ground. But there are things outside of our control where God blesses us, gives us gifts. He fails to take that into account, where the gifts are from. Second thing is that he fails to understand the purpose of wealth, fails to understand the purpose of wealth, the things that he's been given. And I say this because we live in a society that's very individualistic. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But we often think very individualistically. But this is written in the context of a culture that was a strong group culture. You knew your neighbors really well. You lived in community. It took a village to raise a child. You walked the streets every single day. You were in contact with others. And the fact that this man is is trying to consider what to do with this bumper crop that he's been given, he's not even From what Jesus tells us in conversations with others, there seems to be a disconnect. There's no empathy or compassion towards neighbors. If anything, we find that he's isolated. Isolated. Once heard a message about this idea of the fool comes from, another word is is idiot. The root word for that is one that lives outside of a village, outside of a community, decides to be by themselves. This person fails to understand the purpose of wealth, that maybe God has blessed him with this bumper crop to do something good with it. And you might be looking at it and thinking, well, he's a really good agribusiness man, you know? Like, he's, he probably, if this is a bumper crop, other farmers probably had a bumper crop, and so he's storing up the crop until prices, you know, come down a little bit and, or go up a little bit, and so he's thinking of the future. And, and all of that, yes, is good, but where is his community? How is he living life with others around him? The third thing is that he fails to account for God in his plans. He fails to account for God in his plans. We see him have this conversation about what should I do with this, but he never comes before God in prayer saying, what would the Lord have me do with this? There's no thought about God's kingdom, what God would have to do. The fourth thing is that the person finds security in wealth, finds security in the possessions and what they possess, not in God. Puts all the hope in something that can be taken from him, something volatile. What he saves for himself, what we find is that he's not able to possess. This punchline, God says, This is how it will be for whoever stores up things himself but are not rich towards God. This very light night, your life might be taken from you. It goes back to what Aquinas says, we forego eternal things for temporary things right now. Love Eugene Peterson talks about the ending of this parable. He says this, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. So I would say this is a story about stewarding good gifts But this is a story about placing our hope and security in the giver of the gifts. Finding our hope and security in the giver of the gifts. Understanding that the gifts were given to us, to steward. Jesus gets done done speaking, and he says this to further kind of explain. Luke 12, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who, can add, who then, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? He goes on to say, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. there your heart will be also. I think what Jesus is pointing to here. Those who are rich towards God. When it comes to God's economy, alertness and kingdom-seeking are accorded privilege over worry and fear. Therefore, we live our lives seeking to join God in his kingdom with what he's given us. It doesn't mean that we're not good stewards. We don't think far out. We're not worried about our own security but we're seeking first God's kingdom with everything that he's given us. And here in this passage, Jesus talks about when we do that, everything else is added to us as well. What Jesus is saying is that he wants a people who are compassionate and generous and loving, a people who think of eternal things with how they approach their possessions. And the possessions aren't terrible. Those are given for us to enjoy. But that's not where we find our life and security. We find that in God. A couple of questions to reflect on, and then Tim's going to come up and close us uh, with prayer. Each week, we, uh, we close our time with communion. Communion for us is something that's sacred. It's a reminder of how God is at work in this world, how God has worked in this world, and how God is continuing to work. And every week as we come to the communion table, we center ourselves on this ongoing work, this reminder of what God has done. Communion has another word, Eucharist. Eucharist means a gift of grace. The very fact that we take this is symbolic of this gift that God has given us, a gift of salvation and life. We're invited to proclaim it, to remember it, and to live it as well. And today as we come to the communion table, some just hard questions that we need to ask that this passage demands of us is how is my heart when it comes to my possessions, to the things that I possess or desire to have? How is my heart? Am I greedy? Or maybe in what ways am I greedy? Where am I placing my security? Worry and fear, is that getting all of my energy? Where am I placing my hope and security? As you reflect on these questions, and and Tim closes us with this song, feel free to move to the communion table. Be reminded of this God who richly provides, who meets our needs, who invites us to be generous. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for being a generous God. Lord, in moments like today, we're reminded of our need for you, our need to reflect you to others generous people to see people as you see them Lord we're reminded of where our hope lies not in what we possess not in abundance Lord but abundant life comes from you Lord as even if we get ready for this holiday season which is so fun but also as a time of of consuming, Lord, we pray that we'd enter it with pure hearts, with good intentions. That we'd hear from others around us that we wouldn't be isolated. We'd seek first your kingdom. Lord, we give you this time move us to be more like you. We love you.